So that was just the longest, darkest night of the year, <laughs> which is, you know, comparable to this long, dark run between Boghouse episodes. <laughs> uh, happy winter solstice. Uh, happy holidays to everybody who celebrates a holiday during the winter solstice season. Uh, yeah, one of the discoveries that we made in the second half of 2019 is that this podcast used to be much easier to produce regularly because we had all of our material basically pre-prepared. Yeah, during construction when we were living in Downingtown, there really wasn't as much to do on a day-to-day basis. So Melissa spent a lot of time doing research and writing up all her findings and blog posts that, uh, since nobody reads blogs anymore, <laughs> we turned into this podcast, you know, two years later. But in the last few months, we have been doing and accomplishing things in real time, in addition to, you know, all of our non-Boghouse related lives. So that means that we've had basically no downtime to yeah. record and report everything as we go along. <laughs> and whatever downtime we have, at least for me, I usually just spend it vegging out completely because I'm exhausted and I can't do anything but, like, watch mundane television or whatever. Yeah, I've I've managed to squeeze some things into my downtime. I, I think I put an album out between this episode But that's and last. work, Matt. That's not downtime. Says you. You're the composer. It's work for you. It's a hobby for me. <laughs> Okay, sure. <laughs> um, so we really have so much we need to tell you about what we've been up to in the last month, but that's not this episode. Now, if you follow us on social media, you definitely have seen some pictures of what we've been up to, and you've probably figured out just how we've been spending some of our time, but we're going to talk about that in detail probably in the next episode. For now, I, I, I'm just going to say that every weekend since, like, mid-November, we've been really dirty. We've been very sore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we've been drinking a lot of coffee and eating a lot of ibuprofen. Um, Breakfast of champions. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've been seeing a lot of Michael and Tom from episodes 17 and 18. And we have a lot less room in our apartment right now. Boy, do we have a lot of washing and assembling and gluing in our future so and, yeah spoilers I mean, <laughs> well speaking speaking of glue i do want to mention something that i discovered while i was vegging out i discovered an awesome television show which you should also watch if you are interested in wholesome vegging out it's called the repair shop and it's on netflix and I think even you kind of liked it when you were like looking at it, Matt. Oh yeah, like, I'm I'm pretty. Uh, I I won't say I'm finicky about television. Like <laughs> I don't like most television, I guess. But uh, I have a soft spot for terrible science fiction. Like yes, I, you I, do. I, I don't know why. <laughs> um, but, but the repair shop is so cute. It's a reality show, which is definitely not your genre. No. But it's like an awesome reality show. Yeah, it's it's nice because. Um, you know, it kind of ties into a lot of what we do in our day-to-day lives in terms of taking old broken stuff and fixing it. And right. this predates even what we were doing with this bog house stuff. Right. The premise of the show is that there is a repair shop 
which is on the grounds of a museum somewhere in the UK. I think it's a BBC show. And there are experts who work in the repair shop and uh, people in theory, I mean, I think it's all fake because it's a reality show, but people in theory bring their family heirlooms and antique items to the repair shop and an expert takes the television show through the process of repairing whatever it is. The primary ceramics repair person on the show is a woman named Kirsten Ramsey. And she's, I don't know, I'm like completely, oh my God, you're my soulmate. Be my best friend. Let's talk about repairing ceramics together. Which is a bit of a drag because the first like three or four episodes, they didn't even talk to her. Yeah, it was like, like, she was silent. What's going on? I'm like, wait, they were like, oh, and Kirsten, our ceramics expert. And then she kind of would just smile. I'm like, oh, my God, is, does she talk? <laughs> is she allowed to talk on the show? And the neatest part for me, though, is when eventually she did start talking about mm-hmm. repairing mm-hmm. ceramics, everything that she was talking about was exactly what we've been doing as we were assembling our artifacts. So she gives these little nuggets of advice sometimes, like how... On the broken edges of the sherds, she doesn't say sherds, but she means sherds, they have to be completely free of any grit, otherwise the join doesn't match exactly, and then the whole repair goes off kilter. And I'm like, yes, you are totally <laughs> correct. I you learned that, that through experience. Yes, you totally do. Um, and the, my favorite part is that she uses dun, 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 B72 glue. In her repairs, which That's is right. the glue that I was rambling <laughs> on and on about in the, a few episodes ago. Yeah, we like paused the episode to look at the label right. on, on what she was using and, right. and did some Googling. Yeah, because apparently B72 glue can be acquired off the shelf in the UK. It's sold by a company named HMG and it's really easy to get as opposed to here in the USA where if I want large inexpensive quantities of B72 I have to make it up myself from pellets and acetone and fill dozens of empty tubes I bought online but that's okay I mean I need a lot it would be expensive to it, buy it off the shelf it even. would be very expensive <laughs> um it's yeah we're we're doing a museum's work in our house yeah of course I'm also killing my brain cells by like inhaling acetone <laughs> but Back to our Boston travelogue. Take a seat. You're in the bog house. This Boston trip, which we took in early November, was initially just a work trip for me. I wanted to attend two concerts by the art song collective Calliope's Call, which is based in Boston. They were performing one of my works called Come My Tan-Faced Children. I think I've mentioned this song tangentially on the podcast before. It's a setting of a Walt Whitman poem which he intended to be about white people fighting in the Civil War, but which I recontextualized to turn it into a call to arms for the Black Lives Matter movement, causing Walt Whitman to spin around in his grave like a top.
That's a snippet from the first concert with singer Michaela McDonald and pianist Chelsea Whitaker, and they were really terrific. Then after the concert, we got to hang out with one of this podcast's biggest supporters, Doug Shadle, who is a professor of musicology at Vanderbilt University. He's written an acclaimed book called Orchestrating the Nation about 19th century American orchestras. And he's an expert on composer Florence Price, who was sort of forgotten by the American classical music establishment for a long time, but in part, thanks to Doug's effort, is enjoying something of a posthumous renaissance. Also, he's a violist, um, so I feel <laughs> like it was kind of inevitable that we would be friends online. Uh, but then it turns out he's been a really big fan of the podcast, so it was really cool to meet him and discover that he's also awesome to talk to in person. He was in town for AMS, which is like a big battle royale where musicologists fight to the death. What's AMS stand for? American I, Musicological Society. Okay. Or um, all must, what's a good word for die that begins with S? Succumb. All must succumb. <laughs> this is what I think musicologists do. <laughs> they just kill each other. This is the result of me taking one musicology class in like grad school and being like, holy shit, musicology is a fucking blood sport. And anyway. I just, yeah, three-letter acronyms, I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we met up with Doug at a dive bar uh, close to the venue called The Red Hat. Um, a local who was at the concert recommended it to us, and it was not a great recommendation. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're like, uh, you know, what's a cool bar to hang out at? And somebody here, I think they were just making stuff up. Which, I, I mean, know. fair game. I mean, I guess. Uh, like, we we saw it on the way in, and I only remembered it because it, it made me think of Linux. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> boy, it was just, like, loud butt rock. Yeah. Um, it was, I don't know. Food. It wasn't really my scene. Anyway, it does, you know what? Good company makes up for a bad bar. Yeah. Um, and we were also there with my friend Sarah Bow, who is a really cool choral conductor and singer based in Boston. So it was a it was a great first night. Yeah. Um, and Doug also gave us a copy of his book. Thanks, Doug. Which we have been way too busy and exhausted to read yet, but I really want to get stuck into it in January. One day. Um, yeah. <laughs> Someone should make an audiobook version of it so I can listen to it while I glue. Doug. <laughs> anyway, aside from the music and friends, we realized we were planning a trip that would be following in the footsteps of Enyan Williams, who we talked about at length in episode nine. Uh, Enyan, for those who need a refresher, was Daniel Williams' son who fought in the Revolutionary War, and he kept a journal about his time in the Boston area in 1775. Now, before we went up there, I actually spent some time doing a whole pile of research and made great abbreviated notes, and I, I saved it in Microsoft OneNote because it, it stores to the cloud. Um, it didn't store to the cloud. <laughs> I, I opened up on my phone, and the notes that I had meticulously taken on my desktop computer uh, were not on my phone. <laughs> Best late plans. So, yeah, um, I, I, we thankfully didn't just have to go off of memory. Uh, we do have our phones with us, so we did have to do some of that research on the fly while we were in town. So when Enyan first arrived in Massachusetts from Philadelphia... He was very excited to see the soldier camp, and uh, he wanted to report to the headquarters of the Patriot Forces, which were all based in Cambridge. Cambridge, of course, is named after Cambridge University in England, and it's most famous, for those of you who aren't from the area or know anything about Boston, 
as the place where Harvard University is located. Uh, these days, MIT is in Cambridge too, although that university wasn't established until 1861, whereas Harvard goes all the way back to 1636. Right. As soon as Enion arrived in town, he headed straight to the soldiers' camp, and that site is now actually a park that you can visit. It's a public park, a short walking distance from the main downtown area of Cambridge. There were like all these memorials kind of scattered around the walking paths. Yeah, of some the of them park. were old, some of them were new. Right. It was, it was interesting. Yeah. And there were memorials to like all different wars. So there obviously there was a memorial to the Revolutionary War, but also the Civil War and World War II. And there was a memorial to, you know, Masons and things like that. But really, it just looks like a a very peaceful, nicely tended park. When you're in the park in 2019, it's actually really hard to imagine what it might have looked like with a ton of cold, untrained soldiers hanging out in dirty tents, passing the time between skirmishes with the British. I mean, we got the cold part down. <laughs> there it, was, was, well, it, was, it was almost to the day. It was like, because um, we were there November the 2nd, and Anion was visiting the camp in like October 14th. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we got the cold part down. <laughs> it was, was well, was, it was almost to the day. It was like, because um, we were there November the 2nd and Anion was visiting the camp in like October 14. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of neat how that coincided. So, you know, while we talked about like Baron von Steuben teaching American soldiers at Valley Forge not to shit where they ate, <laughs> uh, Valley Forge is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's a bunch of like farmers fields at the time. And in this case, the soldiers at Cambridge could probably just eat at taverns and shit in privies like everyone else in the area. Right, because it's kind of in the middle of a pretty populated area. Like, yeah. it's a nice town. Yeah, as we'll get into, there were some wealthy folks who lived around what is now this park. Still, I kind of imagine that it wasn't the nicest experience for the regular residents who lived right next to where the soldiers' camp would be. Like, can you imagine... If there were a bunch of soldiers camped out underneath I-95 and, like, our house was right here. <laughs> oh, it was a weird time. I've, I've been thinking about that a lot as, as we go through this. Like, just, yeah, a whole bunch of dudes yeah. just camped out. Yeah, and I remember while I was researching this episode, I found <laughs> right, um, right. a newspaper advertisement from Thomas Mifflin saying that George Washington forbid bad anybody to bring cider to sell to the soldiers in the camp because the soldiers were just getting like shit-faced in the campsite and it was like a real problem <laughs> yeah it's amazing we got anything done i will say though Enion williams was not a common soldier he was not the kind of person who would hang out at the camp with all of the peasant soldiers as you may remember from episode nine Enion was rich, and he was friends with very important people, and thus he got to hang out with officers, who I am sure would not be caught dead sleeping in the camp. Officers, as we learned, in fact lived in the fancy houses in downtown Cambridge, so that's where we headed next. And we got really lucky. Enion mentioned in his journal that he stayed with Major Thomas Mifflin, George Washington's quartermaster general and the second cousin of Benjamin Mifflin, who was the first owner of a building after the pens in the 1740s. And some quick research on the website cambridgehistory.org uncovered that Mifflin's headquarters in Boston in 1775 were at 42 Brattle Street in a building which is now known as the William Brattle House. 
Okay, so this is Abby and Ray. We have gone to, uh, what's it called? Cambridge. Cambridge. Common. Commons? Or common? Common? Yeah. Anyway, it's established in 1636, so they say. And, uh... This looks like the Philosophical Society. And after a little bit of wandering, we soon found it. 42. Oh, this is it? This is it. This is the Brattle House. Okay. So, oh, it says, read it. Home of the Tory General Brattle until 1774, quarters of General Thomas Mifflin, commissary of the American Army. 1775 to 1776. And it was built in 1727, which means they could come to our house and be like, ugh, modern trash. (laughs) The Brattle House is on the National Register of Historic Places, and it seems to look pretty much the same now as it did in the 1700s, except now it's a school facility for the Cambridge Center for Adult Education, which means it was really easy for us to walk in the building like we own the place and take a look around. Are you allowed to go in? What does this mean? Mm. No? Okay. Does it... Oh, it's open. Okay, we're in the lobby. We're going up the stairs. I don't know if we're trespassing. <laughs> Brattle House is a very typical Georgian-era building. Georgian-style architecture is named after the King's George, you know, one through four, who ruled Britain between 1714 and 1830. And architects in this style are obsessed with symmetry and use proportions influenced by classical architecture and geometry. One thing that stood out to me as we were doing this New England trip was a lot of Georgian architecture up there is a lot more mixed than Philadelphia because in Philly everything's brick. But this was like clapboard wood siding. So this house in particular, being an upper middle class urban home, stood three stories tall. It had dormer windows at the top floor and a classical looking portico in the front. It's covered with that wood siding and was painted a pale yellow. And all the windows have these black shutters. Oh, there's little classrooms. Do you think one of these could have been his bedroom? Absolutely. They have really high ceilings for a colonial home, actually. I wonder if they were raised. William Brattle, that the house is named after, was born in 1706 and was one of the wealthiest men in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He inherited money and estates from his family, both his father and his uncle, when he was 21. He went to Harvard, got a master's, was really popular, and later achieved the rank of general major after fighting in the French and Indian Wars and in the Seven Years' War. He was married twice to two rich and very well-connected women. The first wife died, and he had a total of nine children, of whom two survived to adulthood. Yikes. I mean, it's the same story with Williams, right? He passed his time as a physician, a lawyer, and a preacher. So, doctor, lawyer, and priest <laughs> all rolled it's up an into interesting one. interesting mix. I think he just did everything. Like, he was just one of these, like, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to be incredibly rich and learn all this stuff and do everything and yeah, be popular. There were certainly gaps in society as these colonies were growing up, and you see an opportunity to fill in those spaces, I guess. Mm-hmm. In the 1770s, when he was in his late 60s and the revolution was starting to take hold, he found himself in some political hot water. 
At first, he was accused of being a fence straddler by Boston revolutionaries because, as the richest guy around, he appeared to be supporting both sides and hedging his bets, kind of like how some billionaires now give to both political parties or pay lip service to one side while still donating heavily to the other, like most major tech companies. <laughs> yeah, look up the tax records of like Twitter and Facebook and Microsoft. Whee! It's terrible. Yep. In 1774, however, some scrappy Boston patriot intercepted a letter he wrote tipping off British loyalist forces to a patriot plot to steal gunpowder as a part of their war preparations. I'm really putting the pop screen to its paces here. <laughs> um, uh, that letter was published to a newspaper and it showed that Brattle was actually on the side of the British. Obvi. With this plot being uncovered, it was foiled by the Brits, and the Patriots were very angry about the whole incident. In fact, you can research this if you search for the powder alarm, because uh, that's what you're going to do with your spare time. <laughs> you can read more details about this. I, I was deep into it, because there were a lot of interesting things around this house um, that we can't even get into in the time this episode a lot. Right. But the important thing to note is that the Boston Patriot revolutionaries were so angry at William Brattle for betraying their plot to steal the gunpowder, which they technically owned. Anyway, it's a long story. What you need to know is that Brattle, along with a lot of other Tories, Ooh. which are the British supporters, they shortly decided to get the hell out of Dodge because they started to feel unsafe in their own homes. And they still have the Tories now in the UK. The Tories just won they the sure last do. election. And now, um, yeah, Everything that's is terrible. Shit. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, after Brattle fled, the Boston Gazette published a little article mocking him for having, quote, a singular talent at running away. <laughs> <laughs> Like Brave Sir Robin, right? <laughs> and also John Adams, as in that John Adams, took the opportunity to be pretty savage about Brattle in print too. They actually had kind of a feud going on between those two. Hmm. So Brattle is humiliated. He leaves town soon after the Revolutionary War starts. And then during the Siege of Boston, Patriot officers like Mifflin and Washington took over the very fancy Cambridge mansions that the Tories had abandoned when they left town. So we took the opportunity to, while in Brattle House, read some more of Enion's journal upstairs in a room that might have actually been a bedroom that he stayed in. Right, it was like up on the second floor, which is seems like bedroom area. Yeah, and actually a lot of the trim looked original to the era even. It was really cool literally following in the footsteps of this guy that we've been reading about because of this wacky journey of buying a building. Um, so it's possible he wrote these words in his journal in that room. October the 14th, Saturday. Rode on through this pretty country 43 miles to Cambridge. The countersign is Norfolk. Saturday evening, 5 o'clock, we arrived in Cambridge, which is about one mile from the encampment on Prospect Hill, etc., such was our anxiety that we went down directly to the camp and uh, lines on prospect. But the night came and we could not see the hills around. We called at Colonel Thompson's quarters and found him and all his officers well. I was introduced to His Excellency General Putnam, to Colonel Reed and Mr. White. Major Mifflin offered me a bed at his quarters, which I accepted and had the pleasure to see Miss Abby Collins there. Abby Collins. Mm -mm, Abby Collins. After our quick exploration of Cambridge, we followed the path of Enion's journal to Powderhorn Hill, 
which he claimed commanded the most beautiful view I ever beheld. Little sidebar here, nobody seems to know exactly why Powderhorn Hill got its name. Uh, There is some 19th century bullshit written about how someone bought it from the Native Americans for a horn of gunpowder, but this is actually very unlikely to have occurred in the early 1600s. This is where I make a terrible joke about Sarah Powderhorn Hill, the first lady of Boston. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody knows who she is. That's right. You can cut that. It's much more likely that it got its name because of the shape of the hill, like it was kind of a curved shape, although development and landfilling since the 1700s has completely obscured that curve. The top of the hill right now is dominated by the soldier's home in Chelsea, which is a big sort of retirement facility and medical facility, it looks like, that was established after the Civil War as a rest home for veterans, and it's still in use today. We actually saw several of the residents smoking and sitting out in the yard areas around the buildings there. Because this is that kind of facility, we couldn't wander freely in or out. There were even signs about not taking photos. But I think if you were living in one of the rooms at the facility with a window facing south, you'd probably have a pretty nice view. For us sitting out in the parking lot, however, the view that uh, Enyan describes, uh, I'm sure is great if we could get above the trees. Um, You can kind of see snatches of it. Yeah, there are certain spots where you can look out and see uh, some of the shipyard. Um, You can see the planes landing and taking off at the airport. But now the hill is mostly occupied by a soldier's home. We had really limited time and couldn't visit the other sites around Boston that Enyan mentioned because we had to keep driving north. We had a second Calliope's Call concert, which was in... Marblehead! Marblehead. (laughs) You might remember Marblehead as the, quote, dirty, disagreeable place that Enyan describes being full of miserable, emaciated, and occasionally disabled children begging for money from every single passerby because, well, their fathers had all left to join the military. Specifically, because those men were fishermen and had sailing skills, they joined the Navy. Nowadays... As the town's welcome sign proclaims, Marblehead has actually rebranded itself as the birthplace of the American Navy. Thanks to all those Marblehead sailors abandoning their families. We were reading the Wikipedia entry as we came into town, and we stumbled on kind of an interesting fact. The very first armed ship commissioned by the Navy in 1775, like the Navy's founding vessel, was called the Hannah. What? (laughs) (laughs) And it was originally a fishing schooner owned by a Marblehead fisherman, which he named after his daughter, Hannah. From the Wikipedia page, it said that there was actually a dispute between two small fishing towns in Massachusetts over uh, who was the home port of the Hannah. Both Beverly and Marblehead claimed to have been the Hannah's home port, and they both asserted the honor of being the birthplace of the American Navy because of that. Until one day a plaque was discovered in the Philadelphia Naval Yard, Hmm. so kind of right down Delaware Avenue from where we are, proclaiming Marblehead to be the true birthplace. And since then, Beverly reinvented itself as, quote, Washington's naval base. (laughs) Everybody's got to have a hook. (laughs) The first capital of America. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Sorry, York. Not sorry. (laughs) 
Now, we can report from our travels that Marblehead definitely does not look like a dirty, disagreeable place full of begging orphans anymore. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that it seems like a pretty comfortably wealthy community. We didn't have a lot of time to explore, but you could see a lot about how the town was formed by the way the streets are completely jumbled and confusing and crooked and narrow. Like really narrow. I thought I was going to crash the Magnum. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as you got closer to the shoreline, just got worse and worse. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, in my head always thought of Boston in general as being just hard to navigate and weird. This is like a microcosm of that concentrated. Yeah, unlike Philadelphia, which of course was planned out meticulously in a perfect grid with 90-degree angles by (laughs) William Penn, Marblehead clearly grew organically beginning way back in 1629 with people just setting up houses wherever the hell they wanted and probably laying streets based on whatever way their livestock wandered around. Like, you know, oh, there's a cow path. I guess that's a street now. We'll just build a house on the corner, whatever, who cares, right? (laughs) Marblehead are also very proud, of course, of their fishing heritage. The venue for the Calliope's Call concert, which was called Old North Church, has a really cute fish weather vane (laughs) on top of the steeple, which they call the Golden Cod. (laughs) Not to be confused with the Golden Calf. (laughs) The the golden cod is really cute, actually. And it's also a picture of the golden cod is embossed on all of their hymnals. That church was built in 1824, although the congregation itself was first organized by fishermen and mariners in 1635. And they organized the church because they didn't want to have to travel all the way to Salem to worship. Yeah, it was really neat. In this town, a lot of the buildings had these historical plaques with the dates that they were built and information on who stayed there or who owned the buildings, which, again, I think speaks a lot to the wealth of the town, that uh, this is something that they were able to put together and maintain. I don't and remember it was really that at neat all. Seeing... You're not thinking of Annapolis, are you? No, no. I oh. remember because on the building right next to it, it was this you know wooden house from 1725 or something oh, like cool. that. Oh, cool. And all of these buildings around there, having these dates stamped on them, just kept making me think, these were here back when it was this dirty, dirty town. <laughs> when when Enyan when was Enyan, miserably right, wandering around. Was like, I hate this place. The women are dirty and lazy <laughs> and the children keep asking me for money and they look very sad. Unlike Salem, of course. <laughs> right. Salem was actually the next stop after the concert. We had booked a night at the Hawthorne Hotel in the middle of town just because we'd never been to Salem before. We took an extra day and decided to check it out. Salem clearly is a town that loves Halloween. <laughs> I um, mean. <laughs> yeah. It's, there's a ministry song about Salem, I think. It's got a different title. Uh, and we were actually visiting right after Halloween was over. So the atmosphere there was very post-festival exhaustion, although it was still definitely populated by lingering goth and witch tourists. Yeah, for sure. Now, Melissa was wearing a wide-brim fedora as we checked into the hotel, and there were definitely people in the hotel lobby who assumed that she was clearly here for witch things because she was wearing a hat. (laughs) Um, That's right. Oh my god, you remember that lady as I was coming in who was just like smiling at me like like she wanted to say, I don't know, some witch thing at me. And I'm like, oh God, it's the hat. I know what's happening here. <laughs> Just like Enyan Williams' experience. 
with the smiling Salem women. Weird, smiley Salem women who just wanted to be friendly. <laughs> That's right. And he was like, oh my God, just like sex workers. <laughs> I didn't think there was sex workers, but no, that wasn't the vibe. That, that wasn't these the vibe. Gave off. They they yeah. thought I was like in costume. It was very funny. <laughs> anyway, the most important thing that I really want to say about Salem is something that we weren't actually expecting when we came to town. Where are we? We are at the Maritime uh, Historic Site. It's not a museum. Uh, in Salem, Massachusetts, on the beach next to the wharf. It's run by the NPS. National Park Service, if you're avoiding acronyms. <laughs> yes, three-letter acronyms for everyone. Anyway, so in... Oh, what's this? <gasps> we found redware! <laughs> okay, so uh, Enyan Williams says in his... Uh, journal that when he visited Salem, what did he say about the tide? We can read it out for real, but we're here because Enyan Williams came down to the shore because of course he did, his dad is a freaking sea merchant and the tide appears to be out a fair ways Yeah um, In Enyan's time, the tide would go out 12, 13 feet I don't know that it's quite that much of a difference out here, but it's out pretty far and we came down to the shore because when the tide is out on the beach is the perfect time to go mudlarking for treasures from the sea, which we're not taking with us because it's not, it's illegal and immoral to, remo- to remove things from national park areas. Although I don't know if this beach counts as part of the national park. Anyway, well, we have found, let's children nearby (laughs) we have found a selection of glassware and uh, I just spotted a redware shirt that looks like um, a pot with which takes a lid so you can see the profile of it we'll take a picture of it we're just gonna leap them up on the ridge for for other people to look at So, obviously, we spent way too much time on the beach, beachcombing. Although we did not take any shirts with us, we have enough shirts of our own anyway. And I feel like we only collect stuff that comes from our block. Like, what's the point of collecting shirts that come from anywhere else other than our block in Philadelphia, right? Yeah, to me, it's like buying autographs on eBay. Like, right. To, the whole point of an autograph is you had this experience where you met somebody and they signed something of yours. Yeah. And uh, it's it's much the same with antiques <laughs> and pottery shirts. Like, I'm sorry, did I dig that out of a toilet in you know with 250 year old shit in it with my own hands? No. Boring. I'm, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> however, if you, dear listener, are interested in archaeology and you want to see some old artifacts just lying around uh, for you to check out, head to the beach at Salem because there are plenty of artifacts at low tide that you could just wander around finding and picking out of the sand. And if you do find any, make sure you leave them on the rocky ridge for other people to look at when they come by.
near this historic site by the water, which I, I found really fascinating, even though it was mostly closed for the season, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, we did visit some houses nearby, which are pretty much contemporaneous with our own building, uh, especially since Enyan mentioned in his journal that the houses in Salem were the most like Philadelphia's of any places that he visited. And after we finished with those houses, of course, no trip to Salem would be complete without checking out Proctor's Ledge, which is the site confirmed by historians only very recently, like in 2016, as the exact spot where 19 innocent people were famously hanged as witches in 1692. Word up to everyone who did the crucible in high school, right? It's kind of incredible to me that it took 324 years to identify and mark the spot where the gallows were. But it's also a testament to the meticulous work of modern historians uncovering this fact when, I mean, I think the earlier people of Salem probably wanted to cover it all up because it's like this hugely shameful chapter in their history that ended up defining what the town was about. That's one of the themes that is recurring in archaeology is you're uncovering the stories that history may not necessarily tell. Especially if they have a vested interest in not telling the story. (laughs) What's interesting is because this is a very new discovery, the memorial just kind of exists in this part of Salem that wasn't considered all that important historic before. So it's around the corner from a CBS parking lot. And it's just like Moya Mensing and the the Acme. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, oh, the Moya Mensing prison is now just a grocery store. And the place where people were hung as witches looks out at a CVS. <laughs> like, you can actually get pretty close to the ledge itself. And it's pretty wild to stand there and imagine what life would have been like in 1692 that this town-wide hysteria took hold and people were killed for no real reason other than maybe ergot poisoning in the bread. <laughs> You know. <laughs> yeah. The last stop on our tour of Massachusetts actually had very little to do with Enyan Williams. You might remember that while Melissa was at Dish Camp in June, the amazing potter Mark Shapiro made a replica of the Pipkin that we found at the bottom of our first privy. Since we were in the right state, we figured we might as well go and pick it up in person, especially since that gave us the rare opportunity to see Mark's workshop at Stonepool Pottery, which uh, you can see photos of at stonepoolpottery.com, but it really does no justice to this. Like, It's like pottery Shangri-La. It was amazing. <laughs> um, it's in this town in rural western Massachusetts called Worthington, And to get there, you basically have to drive over a windy road through wooded mountains until you don't get any cell signal. And (laughs) you hope your GPS is still working so you don't miss the turn onto Conwell Road. I bring up the name of the road because there's actually an interesting Philadelphia connection here that Mark told us about. This road is named for the guy who once owned all the property on it, Russell Conwell. Conwell was born into a Massachusetts farming family in Worthington, but later... 
after attending Yale and fighting in the Civil War, became the founder and first president of Temple University here in Philadelphia. Right up the road from where we used to live. It all just wraps into each other. Yeah. Everything from the Navy Yard finding a plaque about... Yeah, it's yeah. Right. It's like Boston and Philadelphia were really very, very connected through the 1700s and 1800s, despite it taking nine days for someone to get between the two cities on a horse. You know, it's kind of amazing to me. Anyway, Mark is the nicest guy possible. I mean, he's such a sweet guy. He had literally just gotten back from a work trip that afternoon. And we thought, I mean, I thought we would just go in and get the Pipkin and sort of take a look at his studio and then get out as quickly as possible because, mm-hmm. you know, he must have been like really tired and I didn't want to bother him. It was kind didn't of want a last-minute yeah. thing. But no, he he invites us in. He gives us a tour of his amazing farmhouse. He fed us apples that he grew himself <laughs> and delicious local cheese. And he talked with us for like at least an hour before showing us his amazing pottery studio which like is it was like a really a much larger room than i thought it was gonna be oh yeah and then he has a bunch of kilns that he built himself like different kinds of kilns and uh pottery all over every wall and several throwing wheels and it was just amazing i particularly enjoyed that uh you know he made us tea in teapots and teacups that he made himself and just we're so busy running around doing all of these things that being out in this country house and just sitting down and having tea, it was just really nice. It was super chill and uh, really it puts context into the things that we pulled out of the ground. Right. He's just also like a really chill person. Like, yeah. I feel like he's just a really calming kind of presence when you hang around him. So, I mean, you know, I haven't hung around him that much, but the two times I've hung out with him, <laughs> that's that's the impression I get. So while we're up in the studio, he goes over and he gets, lo and behold, the recreation that he made of our Pipkin. Yeah. It's so cute and awesome. <laughs> it is. It's it's funny because Mark was apologizing. He's like, "Oh, you know, this is this is just a prototype, and uh, I forgot what color it was." And um, he's like, "I, I want to try again. Like, we'll we'll do it again. We'll get it right next time." The thing that we noticed is just how much the clay shrinks when it's been fired in a kiln. Yeah, when he first threw the pipkin at Dish Camp, it was like in its wet clay form. It was significantly bigger than the original Pipkin from Apravi. And I was kind of like, oh, that's that's bigger. Like, how come it's so much bigger? And he said, oh, there'll be some shrinkage. And I didn't really realize how much shrinkage. But this one is actually smaller than the Pipkin in the Privy would be. So the next time we do it, he's going to have to make it even bigger to account for the shrinkage. But I mean, what really counts here is we can drink out of the Pipkin without getting lead poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's important, even though... I'm told lead tastes sweet and is kind of tasty. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 now. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're not having children anytime soon. Bring on the lead. Bring on the stupidity. <laughs> I'm supposed to get angry and stupid as I get older, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, by the time we left Mark's studio, it was pitch black outside. And we still had to drive all the way back to Philadelphia. But... We were able to do it in a couple hours, not nine days like Enyan. Yeah, on horseback with a sore bum. Yeah, we're, you know, in this climate-controlled vehicle. (laughs) It was... Life is good. Life is good. So, next 
time on the bog house we are planning to catch you up on all of the fun shit that's been happening here at home you dig 16 feet and what do you get a house full of shirts (laughs) (laughs) i'm matt dunphy and i'm melissa dunphy and you've been listening to the bog house you can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Thanks to our audio assistant, Kate, and our research assistant, Clarice. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear.